so good to be here with you this morning. As many of you know, Ryan has been on sabbatical these past several months, and we've had the privilege of having a number of the other elders and men in our residency group get to preach, and I have been truly blessed by our summer together in the Psalms. What does it mean to be blessed or blessed? That's the first word of our passage here before us today, and we're going to use it as our guiding theme as we look together at what the Spirit of God has to teach us from his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we get to gather together on the Lord's Day as your people. We are not here on our own merit, but because of Christ and what Christ has done for us on the cross. And because of that, more than any people, we are truly and fully blessed. And we can be happy knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we are counted righteous in Christ. I pray that you would be with me today as I declare God's word to God's people. Keep me humble. Protect me from error. We ask that your word would go out with clarity and conviction and truth, and that we may all be changed by your word today. It's in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. The entire book of Psalms starts with this word, blessed. In chapter 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here again in chapter 32, we, for the first time since Psalm 1, start a chapter with this word, blessed. So I ask, what does it mean to be blessed or to be counted with those who are blessed? Do you consider yourself to be blessed? I went with the team from Training Leaders International to teach in Liberia this past December on one of my trips there. We were teaching together a course on understanding and communicating biblical poetry, and we did that by walking through the book of Psalms together. One of the passages that we focused on was this passage here, Psalm 32. It was so helpful for me to discuss with my students in Liberia what it means to be blessed. Often when they asked me to pray for them, they asked that I would pray for blessings for them and their families. What did they mean by blessings? Liberia is a country that is caught in some of the most extreme poverty in all of the world. Adding insult to injury, the false teaching of the prosperity gospel is rampant in West Africa. The week that I was there in December coincided with the annual International Conference for Living Faith Church Worldwide, or as it's called in Liberia, Winner's Chapel. 
There's actually a Winner's Chapel building immediately next door to the place where we were staying. So we were were awakened at 4 a.m. every morning with the extremely loud live broadcast of the National Conference from the church headquarters in Nigeria because they were a couple hours ahead of us. There were 300,000 people in live attendance at that conference and hundreds of thousands more around the globe listening in to hear the preaching of the church founder, David Oyedepo. Mr. Oyedepo is often ranked near the top of the list of the wealthiest pastors in the world, sandwiched in between Kenneth Copeland and Joel Olstein. He has an estimated net worth of between 150 and 200 million dollars. As I woke up early each morning to the sound of his preaching, the one clear theme that came through was that God wants all Christians to be successful and blessed. What do you think Mr. Oyedepo means when he speaks of being blessed? What do we mean when we think of being blessed? It is clear in Scripture that God does want to bless us. But I think we will see here today that King David, the author of Psalm 32, has a very different picture of what it means to be counted with the blessed and to be happy in this life. Very different than our distorted picture and different than the distorted picture that the preachers of the prosperity gospel falsely share around the world. Let's look at what this word blessed means. The word that it comes through in Hebrew, uh, it's actually an interjection, an exclamation, something used to draw your attention. David really can't wait to communicate this. He's going to tell you about these people, and he wants you to know that they are blessed. They are blessed. If instead of being written onto a scroll by King David, it was in a text message from one of my teenage daughters, It would probably be accompanied by about a dozen exclamation points, a handful of emojis, and maybe a very excited gif. This word blessed technically means true happiness or supreme happiness. It expresses a real and deep happiness in life. So what brings us this true and blessed deep happiness? Is it a couple hundred million dollars? Maybe a private jet or two. There are many good things that I count as blessings in my life. My lovely wife, Leanna. My three beautiful and kind daughters. This loving church family. Even some more superficial things like living in this beautiful state. Living in this country where we have freedoms that others do not. Simple things like a delicious cheeseburger, financial stability, a home to live in, clothes to wear, physical health. The list can go on and on. And we should be thankful to God for the physical blessings that he has given to us. But are any of these things a firm foundation for true happiness in life? The Holy Spirit, through the words of David, is trying to communicate something much more substantial and foundational to true happiness and blessedness in this life. 
That is what we're going to dwell on this morning. How truly blessed we are that we are forgiven. And how truly blessed we are that we are counted righteous. These are blessings that we can hold on to. No matter what suffering and trials we face in this life. Those are going to be our two main points today. We're blessed to be forgiven. And we're blessed to be counted righteous. We're going to look at each of those from the text and then look in light of those, what are we commanded to do? What are we called to do? Before we dive into the text, I want to briefly comment on the type of psalm that this is. Depending on which commentary you read or who you listen to, Psalm 32 can be classified in several different ways. Some list it as a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession. Others still list it as a psalm of thanksgiving. And others, a psalm of wisdom or an instructional psalm. In fact, the title at the beginning, a masculine of David, that's what that word masculine literally means, is to instruct or to help one perceive. I agree with all of them in some way, and that's one of the things I love about Psalm 32, is it encompasses all of this. It begins by declaring that we are blessed because we are forgiven in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 5 focus heavily on confessing our sin. Verses 6 and 7 are instructions from the psalmist to pray and to cry out to God. Verses 8 and 9 jump into the mix with instructions straight from Yahweh himself for us in this life. And then it concludes in verses 10 and 11 with a very communal and public call to joyfully worship God for what he has done. As we study through these words from Scripture this morning, may we be instructed in what God wants us to learn and be perceptive to the truth of why we are so blessed to be counted with the forgiven and the righteous. May we learn the importance in the Christian life of confession and obedience. May we see that our only hope for righteousness comes from being counted righteous by God. And may we be driven to joyfully and passionately worship our great God for all that he has done for us. Look now at the text with me in verses 1 and 2. This will be the basis for our first point. We are blessed to be forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is what we call a poetic set. Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. In English poetry, we often emphasize rhymes or words that sound similar at the end of sentences. Hebrew poetry often uses these sets or parallelisms to line up concepts to help us see them more clearly. Let's examine this text closely to better appreciate what David is trying to tell us about why we are so blessed to be forgiven. In this first poetic set in verses 1 and 2, we see sin referred to three different ways by three different words. And then three different things that happen to our sin. To understand why being forgiven can bring us happiness and make us blessed, 
we first must better understand the true depth of our depravity and the need for our forgiveness. Look at each pair with me and get the full picture of how blessed we are to be forgiven of our sins. First, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We're going to key in on two words, transgression and forgiven. Transgression is a willful rebellion against God. Often we like to try to downplay our sin, to make it disconnected from us, to say, it's original sin handed down from Adam through my parents. And yes, that is true, but it is our sin. It is our rebellion. Or we like to pretend that our transgression is just, just a mistake. Oopsie, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. My bad, I did what I wasn't supposed to do. That's not at all what this word transgression implies. It conveys the fact that we willfully and deliberately rebel against God. Next, look at the word forgiven. The Hebrew word translated here literally means lifted up. The full weight of our transgressions are lifted up off of us. And really here, I think David is trying to point us back to the picture from the Day of Atonement where the sins of the Israelites were lifted up off of them and placed onto the scapegoat and carried away. When I think of this, I picture Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with his heavy burden of sin resting in his pack. This is what Christian says, using English poetry for us. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off from my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Indeed, we are blessed. And we start to see the beginning of our bliss, of how our forgiveness, of how our sins being lifted off of us brings us true happiness. Next, in our poetic set, we see that blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Again, we're going to look at two words, sin and covered. The specific word that's translated here in our English as sin carries the meaning of law-breaking or turning away from the true path. We know God's law and what it requires of us, but we turn away from his perfect law to our own path. We all do what is right in our own eyes. The word covered means what it says. We are covered. Our sins are covered. Our sins are removed from God's sight. They are blotted out so that he no longer looks upon them. My mind is drawn to the image given us in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We are truly blessed to be able to rejoice that our sins, all of our law-breaking, has been covered 
by the robe of righteousness. We're going to come back to this point and this theme of righteousness a little bit later. Thirdly, we see, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We're going to look at the word count and the word iniquity. The word translated iniquity encompasses perversion, twisted ways, evil, distortion, disrespect, disregard for God's holiness and purity. Not only are we in rebellion against God in our transgression and straying from his prescribed path in our sin, we are now twisting, distorting, and perverting what God has said. You think of the perversion described in Romans chapter 1, where it says this, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a pretty nasty list. What does the psalmist say happens to our iniquity? God does not count it against us. This is the, the picture of an accounting ledger. We have racked up all kinds of evil charges, but God does not count them against us. Our ledger is wiped clean. If you've ever been crushed beneath the weight of a financial debt, you know the happiness and the relief that comes when your debt has been cleared. The bank counts your debt against you no more. How much more should we be happy and blessed that the Lord does not count our iniquity against us? David starts out this psalm by exclaiming how blessed we are to be forgiven. That's our first point. We are blessed to be forgiven. So what's, what's next? What are we to do then? So then we're called to confess our sin. In verses 3 to 5, David shares his personal experience. Look at the text with me. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We know from the context of Psalm 51 that it's written as a confession of David when he's confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba. We're not given the same clarity about the immediate context of Psalm 32. But the more that I read and the more that I studied... I'm convinced by commentators who think that this is David writing about the same circumstance. Maybe he's writing it later in time. Psalm 51 is immediately after he's confronted by Nathan. And you get the raw emotion of his confession. But as Addison reminded us last week, these psalms are not always written in chronological order. Because 32 comes in the Psalter before 51 does not mean that it was written 
first. Not even within one psalm are they necessarily written chronologically. It's poetry, not narrative. I think this is David looking back on this experience of his grievous sin and confession and forgiveness, where he's been able to step back and get a little perspective. And he can now talk about it in such a way where he can share how truly blessed it was for him to be forgiven and how he can use his own experience to teach and exhort his people. I believe that the primary focus of David giving this example and his subsequent call for others to confess is targeted at other believers. I don't think he's speaking here of his initial conversion experience, but rather confession of a grievous sin that he has fallen into as a believer. That does not mean that there's no call to repentance and confession for the unbeliever. There absolutely is. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, I urge you to turn to him in repentance and by faith accept the free gift of his grace so that you too might come to know the blessed happiness of having all your sins forgiven. But now, as our text does, I want to focus on what confession looks like in the life of the believer. We clearly see the physical and emotional agony that David describes in verses 3 and 4. Bones wasted away, groaning all day long, hand heavy upon me, strength dried up like the heat of summer. I think all of this fits quite well with the torment of conscience that David must have felt between the time of his initial sin with Bathsheba up to the time where he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. One thing that I want to make crystal clear here David is not losing his salvation because of a grievous sin and then somehow gaining it back by the strength of his confession. No. His transgression was forgiven. His sin was covered. His iniquity was not counted against him. This is where David started the psalm. This is where he was at the beginning. Not where he drags himself and climbs back to through his confession. This is his eternal status. Once we are saved, we are secure in our salvation. Our status in standing with God is secured by Christ and not by us in our performance. We are not bouncing in and out of his grace because of our sin. Our status as forgiven is fixed, but that does not mean that our earthly circumstances are not greatly impacted by our sin. And that's what we see here. David's sin does have consequences that he lives through, but eternal separation from God is not one of them. David sins and he feels the guilt of that sin. And God's fatherly hand of discipline is set firmly upon him to lead him to confession. But he is never removed from his position of being forgiven. God so deeply loves David as his child that he disciplines him in order to restore him to earthly fellowship and communion with himself. The chapter of the London Baptist Confession on Justification, paragraph 5, states it like this. 
God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they usually do not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. This is what we are called to today, to humble ourselves and beg pardon before our gracious Father so that we might be renewed. We know from Hebrews 12 that God disciplines those that he loves. When we sin, this is our heavenly Father disciplining us. Disciplining those who are already justified so that they may be protected and preserved in this life and brought back into right fellowship in his family. Look back at our text in verse 5. David acknowledges his sin to God. Not to another man, but to God. John Calvin puts it like this. God is the true physician. Let us show him our wounds. He is the one who has been offended and injured. So let us ask him for mercy and peace. He is the one who knows hearts and sees every thought. Let us open our hearts to him. We don't confess because God doesn't know. We confess because we need to acknowledge what he knows and what we have been trying to fruitlessly hide. Picking up again in verse 5. David stops covering his iniquity. He confesses his specific transgressions to the Lord. And what does it say at the end of verse 5? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Once David acknowledges his sin and confesses, God forgives him immediately. There is no probation or waiting period. There are consequences to sin, but the forgiveness is not withheld. We know that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Looking now to verses 6 and 7. David turns from recounting his personal experience, and as good teachers do, he turns it into a teaching moment and exhorts his people to cry out to God. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters... They shall not reach him. He urges his people to reach out to God in confession so that they might be restored to fellowship with him. As Addison reminded us last week from Psalm 28, God hears our voice and our pleas for mercy, and he answers us. Regular confession of sin is a most vital part of the Christian life. Don't neglect to confess your sins. Don't get so buried by the deep waters of your guilt that in your despair you cannot cry 
out to God. We need to regularly be confessing. That is why, as part of our liturgy each Lord's Day, as we did this morning already, we confess our sins together. But that's not the only time we need to confess. We need to be doing it daily, hourly, as often as the Spirit convicts us of our sin. In verse 7, we see David reflect on how good it is to be in right fellowship with God as we walk through this troubled life. I want to make a quick note here and be, be careful and gentle. But we saw the anguish, the despair, the depression that David had when his sin was not confessed. Do we experience that? There are many causes of despair and depression, but one of them can absolutely be unconfessed sin. It's not the only one, but when we feel that way, when we feel that our strength is dried up like that of the hot summer day, pray. Ask the Lord if there's an unconfessed sin that is burdening you and leading you to that Depression may not always be the case, but it can bring relief to our circumstances to confess our sin and to be brought into right fellowship with God. And that's what David celebrates here in verse 7. How good it is to be in fellowship. Look at it. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Listen to the language that David uses. Oh, how good it is that God is our hiding place. When we confess, we are brought back into that close and intimate relationship, that fellowship with him. Confessing keeps us near to our God in a place of safety and security. Think of how much pain and suffering we are spared when God's hand of discipline delivers us from the dangerous paths where we love to wander. Praise be to God that our status as forgiven is secure and that our circumstances are immediately improved with confession. We can thrive in truly happy fellowship with our God when we humble ourselves and turn to him in confession. So we've seen that we are blessed to be forgiven, and therefore we should confess. Now we move to our second main point. We are blessed to be counted righteous. The forgiveness of our sins is quite clear in this passage. We're going to have to work a little harder and see more closely how it means, what it means to be counted righteous. Look back at the text with me at the end of verse 2. Blessed is the man in whom spirit there is no deceit. Is this forgiveness for David because he is such a great guy and he has no deceit in his spirit? Is that what it's saying? No way. His deceit's on full display for us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He commits the adultery with Bathsheba. He plots and schemes to cover it up by murdering her husband, how can we say there is no deceit? We see his deceit. 
Is David's forgiveness dependent on his performance or his character? Is ours? I hope not, because we'd all be doomed. Also, look at the last verse of our text, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Who is righteous and upright in heart? On our own, can you and I say that we are righteous? Let's turn to Romans and consult the Apostle Paul for our answer to that question. You can be flipping to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at the familiar verses in Romans 3, starting in verse 9 through 11. We could read it, or 9 through 13. We could read it all, but we don't have time. Paul is speaking to this very question of, of something special about a person or a group of people that qualifies them for forgiveness. When it comes to justification, is there something special that sets the Jews apart over the Gentiles? Let's pick up in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. This is looking pretty grim for us. Psalm 32 talks about us being blessed, but it talks about that blessing being associated with those who have no deceit, who are righteous and upright in heart. Paul has painstakingly and brutally shown us that none of us are righteous. No, not one. So then how do we partake in the blessing? In the happiness of forgiveness. In the rejoicing and the joy described at the end of Psalm 32. I think you probably already know where I'm going. But let's allow Paul to walk us through it. True, none of us are righteous on our own merit based on our works. But by faith, God counts us righteous. Flip over to the next chapter. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Paul has been explaining how Abraham is justified, not by works, but by faith. And let's see where he turns in scripture to support his claim. Picking up in verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Those verses look familiar? I hope so. Here in Paul's most profound explanation of justification by faith apart from works, he takes us right back to Psalm 32 and highlights not only our forgiveness of sins, but we, how we are counted righteous by God. Not only does Christ make it possible for the forgiveness of our transgressions, the covering of our sins, and the discounting of our iniquity, but he also imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. 
This is the glory and the wonder of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are not simply forgiven with our sins being lifted away, and then we have to start from scratch, building up our own righteousness by our good works. No. We are given the righteousness of Christ. And beloved, we can absolutely say of Christ that he has no deceit. He is altogether righteous and upright in heart. So now that we are in Christ, not only does God not count our iniquity against us, but when he gazes upon us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his beloved son. As we sang in our last song, the solid rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then in the final verse, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We saw that also echoed in, the first, in one of the earlier songs we sang, Before the Throne of God. It says, Behold him, the risen Lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness? No, my perfect spotless righteousness. Indeed, how blessed and happy we should be to be counted righteous. We are blessed to be righteous. What now? So then we obey. We have been counted righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Should we continue in our sins? As Paul would say, by no means. Let's look at it back in Psalm 32. Back in Psalms 32. We have a shift here where it's no longer just the psalmist speaking, but it's God speaking directly to his people in verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Yes, our standing before God is based on Christ's righteousness, but we are still called to listen to God's instructions and to follow him in the way we should go. We must obey, not to earn our righteousness, but to thrive in the blessed happiness of this Christian life. If we insist on being stubborn like the mule, we're only going to make life more painful and challenging. No, we will not lose our salvation if we are stubborn, but it will be much better for us if we stay near to God by willingly following where he leads us in his words. We've seen we are blessed to, be conf- blessed to be forgiven, and so we confess. We've seen that we are blessed to be counted righteous, and so we obey. As we conclude, I want to go back to where we began our discussion, what it means to be blessed. I hope that you can see the true happiness that we can have when we dwell on the fact that we are in Christ, and we are forgiven of all our sins and clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That is truly being blessed. 
That truth can bring us happiness and joy no matter what changes around us. When I pray for my friends in Liberia, yes, I ask God that he would supply for their physical needs, which are so great. But I most earnestly pray that they and their families will be blessed by knowing that they are forgiven and righteous in Christ. So many of the other things that we might count as blessings are fragile and fickle and temporary. Think of Job. He had it all, family, health, possessions, wealth. And then in an instant, was taken away. I personally was convicted this morning as I was going back through my sermon about how much my own happiness is tied up in my physical health. Leanna and my girls can tell you that even as I studied these great truths, I was not exhibiting happiness this week. I was not acting like I was blessed. As many of you know, I've been recovering the past two and a half years from cancer and chemotherapy. I've had regular blood tests to check and monitor and make sure that the cancer isn't coming back. Over the last 30 months, I've had 10 of those tests. Each time I have a test, I have to wait about a week for those results. And every time as I wait, I'm a bit of a mess. I'm consumed with stress and worry about the cancer returning. I had my latest blood test on Monday. And this week I've been a bit of a mess. As I've been preparing to preach this sermon to you, I wasn't really preaching it to myself. I could see by my actions the idolatry that my own physical health had become. My happiness, the way that I behaved and reacted to those around me, was so deeply affected just by the uncertainty of a blood test. I didn't even know what it was. The concern was just out there. That shows that my happiness is still tied to my physical circumstances. Instead of being rooted and grounded in my fixed status as a forgiven and righteous child of God. If I meet with my oncologist tomorrow morning, and he tells me that the cancer is back, can I still count myself among the blessed? Can I still be happy and express joy in knowing I am forgiven and counted as righteous? My health may let me down. Any of the physical blessings, the great blessings that God gives to us on this earth, can be taken away and can fail us. But we will never be disappointed if the basis of our happiness is our forgiven and righteous standing in Christ. I'm pretty sure I've shared this here before, but it's worth repeating. That song that we sang and that I quoted and in our liturgy is titled, The Solid Rock, the original name given to that song by its author, Edward Mote, is the immutable basis 
for a sinner's hope. The immutable basis for a sinner's hope. I like that title. For us today, I think we can rightly say that the immutable, the unchanging, the fixed and steadfast basis for our happiness is the fact that in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and counted righteous. Let's finish our time together by reading verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. If you are in Christ, that is you. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, how truly blessed we are. In so many ways, you have been so good and so kind to us beyond what we deserve. We thank you for our many blessings, for our families, for our fellowship here, for our financial means, for our friendships, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know that that is a weak foundation to base our happiness upon. So I am thankful to you, Lord, that my happiness is not tied to my health, that our happiness is not tied to our works or our performance. But in confession, we can be brought back into right fellowship with you. And we can truly rejoice and shout in gladness to you, our Savior, for what you have done for us. We thank you for Christ, for his work on the cross, for his death, so that our sins and transgressions and iniquities might be forgiven and covered and never counted against us. We thank you for his perfect righteous life that is imputed to us. That our hope is not built on our righteousness, but on his alone. And that is our strong and perfect plea before you, our great and holy God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.